Hey Upsell Kateers, Helen here. On today's episode of The Eater Upsell, Greg and I are going to be talking with Frank Bruni, former restaurant critic for The New York Times, current op-ed columnist for The New York Times, and the co-author with his Times colleague Jennifer Steinhauer of the cookbook A Meatloaf in Every Oven, which among other things contains a recipe from Speaker of the House Paul Ryan. We're going to be talking about all of that, restaurant criticism, meatloaf, Donald Trump, Paul Ryan, Donald Trump and Paul Ryan eating meatloaf right after the eh eh noise. But before we get to the eh eh noise, quick reminder, hit that little subscribe button right there on your podcast listening device. Make sure that you have us in your ears every Monday morning without you having to lift a finger, except the finger you have to lift right now to hit that subscribe button. Mr. Frank Bruni, welcome to The Eater Upsell. Hey, thanks for having me here. We have so much we want to talk to you about. Let's go then. Great. I'm here. Where should we start? Should we start with the book? The book, the most recent book, The Reason You're Here. The Reason I'm Here. Is this very beautiful little volume that you Isn't published. Isn't it pretty? It's really, like, as, as physical objects go, it's lovely. I know. I was so thrilled when I got it because you never know how you're going to feel about the cosmetics of your book until it's really all done and you hold the finished copy in your hand. And I, I love the look of this book. I really do. So it's called hats, a hats meatloaf. Off to the illustrator. Yeah, yeah. no, I mean, it, so it's called a meatloaf in every oven, which is a, a, an obliquely political title. Yes, very good. Yeah. Um, and you, you I wrote think it's it with, a reference that's going. You know, common references age, and people forget about them. But. Who was it who said a chicken in every pot? I want to say it was Truman, but I don't. You know, think I, it was. I actually forget. I, but I know the kind of sentiment, the general era, um, and that's absolutely what it's a, what it's a takeoff from. But I, I would it would be fascinating to know how many people who see that title immediately flash on or hear a chicken in every pot. Just what a sort of beautifully simple political time when you could run on a platform of you should have chicken for dinner. Yeah, it, there are. <laughs> People have run on even simpler platforms. I bring to you Make America Great Again. <laughs> I get yes. I mean, like, grammatically simpler, but the but implication of that is quite complex. Yeah, but there's actually, it's interesting, isn't there a lesson in the fact that we remember those two things? Um, even if it seems simplistic, even if it seems almost kind of elementary school, there is an effectiveness to the really blunt, really, you know, elementary slogan. I was surprised to see that you were publishing a meatloaf cookbook um, with your co-author, Jennifer, I guess because I think of you as many things as, you know, I'm a man of many talents, but I I think of you because, you know, I work for Eater as, you know, former New York Times critic and meatloaf is not something that really came up very much during your tenure as a restaurant critic. No, it didn't. Um, it should have. I mean, in the sense that I think I actually think and not just because I did the book, um, I think it should be on more menus because we've we've been in this period for about 15 years, I think accelerated in the last 10 years where um, there's been a kind of consistent trend of chefs of great talent and accomplishment turning their attention toward humble Comfort foods. I mean, we've seen the hamburger interpreted, you know, infinite ways. Uh, the hot dog. You know, think back to when PDT put all of those newfangled hot dogs on their on their bar menu. Um, fried chicken over the last five years. Um, and in a weird way, I think meatloaf has been left out. Um, and I suspect there's some meatloaf bigotry out there. There's some <laughs> meatloaf bigotry in your question, Greg. Well, before you entered the studio, Greg and I were were chatting and. Greg dropped some very negative opinions on meatloaf as a food. I'm just selling you out in front of well, our guests. Well, so, this you know, is what I, I was no saying. Loyalty. But Greg, how, how many good meat, how many like meatloaves in this book? Have you had any of these? No, and there's actually a few that I'm very curious about, like April Bloomfields and some of the more traditional ones as well. But what I was saying is that when I think about taking on some sort of cooking project and going to the grocery store and getting all these ingredients, when I have mm-hmm. that itch, 
I almost never think about making a meatloaf for some reason because it's not something I inherently You see, I, I love to make meatloaf because it is the closest thing I think you can do in the kitchen to child's play. You know, I mean, <laughs> the best way to mix mo- most meatloaves is with your hands, you know, cleaned, freshly cleaned hands. Um, in a restaurant kitchen, one would use plastic gloves, you know, very thin gloves. Um, but it, it it's so reminiscent of Play-Doh as a kid. You literally, you're, you're, you not only get to put your fingers in your food, you're encouraged to put your fingers in your food. And there's a sort of like ability to kind of throw any any bunch of different things together in different proportions to meatloaf that brings me to mind of like those chemistry sets we had as children where you would add different powders and different color. I mean, there is a child's play aspect to meatloaf that I think makes it fun to cook. And if you're someone like me, and this is part of how this book came to be, I was always a very bashful, intimidated cook. Meatloaf was approachable. It was a scalable mountain, you know? Well, one thing I will say, and I, I admit, is that I remember one of my most successful ever, you know, cooking for other people experiences was actually making a meatloaf instead of a turkey on Thanksgiving one year. It was like such a huge hit. Like everyone so there you go. still remember that. Yeah. So why did you turn your back on the meatloaf? Well, I mean, maybe it's time to reconsider the meatloaf or to consider oh, it. it oh, for, I, you know. it is time to reconsider the meatloaf. You know, meatloaf. I have a, a book you could read, Greg. Oh, really? Tell me it's more about it. detailed on the subject. <laughs> you and your, your co-author, Jennifer Steinhauer, who's a colleague of yours at the Times, yeah. have um, the, the subtitle of this cookbook, two chatty cooks, mm-hmm. one iconic dish. Like, it is really chatty. Mm-hmm. And I mean that in a complimentary way. I feel oh, like good. chatty is one of those. No, I think it's a fun book to read. It's yeah. really funny. Yeah. It's oh, very good, rare good, good. that cookbooks are be. funny. Well, we hope that, yeah. Each chapter opens with a dialogue between mm-hmm. you and Jennifer, which I adore. It feels very platonic in the literal sense of Plato. <laughs> it's the two of you talking about what makes it? I mean, you're 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 engaging in the Socratic method to determine what makes a lamb meatloaf a lamb meatloaf. I mean, it's yeah, it's yeah. fun. How did you guys write the chats? Were they lit- were you like g chatting back and forth? We um, uh, and, and we do we do g chat a lot. One of the reasons we wanted to do the chats at the beginning of the chapter is because so much of our relationship is that sort of chatting. You know, we're on g chat all the time with each other, or we're text messaging. I mean, we are the closest of friends, and we are in constant communication. But in a very modern way, it is least often on the phone. Although I will tell you this, our phone time, um, we had this weekend ritual even before we did the book and we have it to this day where if one of us is home on a weekend day unloading the dishwasher, we decide that's the perfect time to multitask. So I'll get a text from her saying, is it dishwasher time? And we'll get on the phone and we'll talk on the phone as we unload our dishwashers. That's beautiful. I know. And, and so we go slowly. So the conversation isn't over. But anyway, we so much of our relationship is those sort of staccato chats. So much of our doing of this book, you know, whether she was reporting on something she just cooked and tried or whether I was saying I have an idea was done by those sorts of chats. So we thought we should really make that an element of the book. And we we constructed these particular chats by like we would say, OK, Saturday, let's 90 minutes. Let's open a open a open a Google Doc um, and we would do it in real time on a Google Doc and then go back and edit it very lightly. But it's 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 pretty much real time, genuine chats. It reads very naturalistically, which I think is probably why it is successfully funny. Like you, I, I'm, I'm so thank you for. I'm glad it's successful because whenever <laughs> you try humor, it's an opportunity to fall flat on your face. Yes, that's very true. I feel like I am very jaded about humor, and I think something that someone once told me, which I often come back to, is if you have to describe yourself as a humorist, you probably aren't. <laughs> yes, I agree. And then there's that famous saying, and I'm going to get it wrong, but dying is easy, comedy is hard, right? <laughs> I think that comes from the same mindset. Yeah. So in this book, you have a lot of recipes from like some complete A-lister chefs. And some people we've even had on this podcast before, like Michael Solomon, all of them. I'm just kind of curious, like which 
like what recipe from you know what are some of your favorite recipes from these like huge chef people that that helped you with this book? Um, I think all of them are good, and I, I just want to say like they were all so generous and such champs. I mean, we like every one of them said an instant yes. Um, some of them gave us recipes that they were making at home but had never publicized. Mario Patali's ha- is the only one that has actually appeared in publication elsewhere. Mike Solomonoff from Zahav, um, he developed that recipe for this book. Uh, Michael Schwartz from Michael's Genuine Food and Drink in Miami, and Zahav and Michael's Genuine are literally two of my favorite restaurants in the country, which is why we went to those guys. Um, he developed this meatless loaf for us. And when Jennifer tested it and had trouble getting it to hold together as easily as he did, he tweaked it not one, but two different times just for us. I mean, chefs are, I mean, they're chefs and they're in the food and hospitality business for a reason because they are just by nature generous people. Um, So I can't pick a favorite among those chef meatloaves. All I can tell you is I was so touched and so impressed by how instantly, immediately generous these chefs were with their time and with their ideas. You mentioned in the book that um, you you tell this sort of cute little mini anecdote about how you dinged Bobby Flay when you were the critic of the Times, and yet one of his recipes appears here, and it's like this beautiful tale of the... The the, healing power of meatloaf, yeah. Like the resurrection of your relationship. No, well, Bobby and I, um, uh, I had had demoted Mesa Grill, which was his signature flagship restaurant for a long time. I had demoted it by a star when I was critic. Um, and he had, um, you know, chefs would sometimes get back in touch with you by phone or email, never face-to-face, nor I face-to-face with them when you're critic. Um, and some of them would, you know, get get back in touch with you and complain about what you'd done. Um, but then there were the other ones who just always took a very high road. Bobby, I remember at the time, um, sent me an email or left me a voicemail saying, obviously, this is a very, very sad day for me, but I, I respect you're right to your opinion, and I res- and I thank you for the like for the for paying attention to us for just for the, for your time and in evaluate. It was really the epitome of class. Um, and after I left the job, uh, somehow he and I ended up occasionally exchanging emails. Just about you know he would maybe compliment me on a column. I would maybe compliment him on a meal that I'd had at Gatto or something like that. And I somehow felt comfortable enough to ask him about the meatloaf. And somewhere in all of this, I read an interview he did where he said his saddest moment. Um, in his career was when Mesa Grill had been demoted a star. And I thought, well, that's really something like he's never said it like that to me, but he is still willing to have a cordial social relationship and even willing to contribute to this book. So my my hat goes off to Bobby Flay. So it's been, as Greg mentioned, eight years or so since you were the critic I stopped the in um, uh, the end of August 2009. So like, what's that, eight, uh, seven, seven and a half seven years, and years and eight and a half years? Yeah. I feel like that is, I mean, obviously people will identify you as former New York Times restaurant critic, forever. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like that is ever a burden? No, um, I don't feel it's a burden at all. I mean, it was a privilege to do the job. Um, and it's kind of actually, it's more fun to be an ex-restaurant critic than a restaurant critic. Because when you're a restaurant critic, um, you really, uh, it's incumbent upon you to keep an enormous distance from the chefs that you're eating with, or either who, whose food you're eating. Um, and often you're as curious about them as they are about you because you have such effects on each other's lives. Um, and be, and you so respect what they do, I mean, which is why you're a restaurant critic, because you really have a reverence for that that form, um, that it's frustrating sometimes not to be able to get to know them. Now some of them are friends, restaurateurs are friends. Now when I go into someone's restaurant, if they um, if they care that I'm there and if, um, and if that somehow means something to them, they can come to the table and talk to me. They can say, I'd really like you to try this one other thing. And it's not this stilted, fraught, tense thing. So um, it is such a 
it was such a privilege to be the restaurant critic. It is such a privilege to be an ex-restaurant critic. And my guess is that um, anyone who's been in that job at the Times would probably have the same stories and tell you the same thing. Do you do you make reservations under your own name? Well, sure, because it would <laughs> it would be the height of absurdity to use a different name because I'm no longer I no longer need to be anonymous. Like it would look so ridiculously deluded and self-important <laughs> to be making phony reservations. So yeah, I make them under my name, but it's not because I'm saying, please know that I'm there. And, you know, I can, in other cities, sometimes that name draws no notice. In New York, it pretty much is always recognized. But I also have heard repeatedly through the years from restaurateurs that there are people who make reservations in my name who are not me. So they that often tell— Oh, me. yeah, people oh, do it all the time. Yeah. So, So a lot of chefs will say, it's funny, I saw your name in the book. Um, some of them now know my phone number and all that, but they're like, I wasn't, I couldn't be a hundred percent sure it was you until you walked in the door. You know, it never occurred to me that people would fake being a critic. Oh yeah, yeah. I feel like you know your tenure at the the New York Times, you kind of had a rise to the occasion because it was kind of when the blogosphere was really starting to cycle yeah, up, and you yeah. know you started writing. Well, it's when Eater, it's when Eater really took off. Yeah, that is that is true, and. You know, there was like so much more information I feel like out there and so many more opinions. And I think you really nimbly stayed on top of it all while still, you know, really leaving this huge mark and contextualizing all these trends and chefs and restaurants that would become so important or still so important. Like you were, you know, you were the one that was reviewing all the Momofuku restaurants when they opened. That's right. And, yeah. and seeing Eleven Madison Park go from two stars, three stars to four stars. And those guys are, you know, taking over everything right now. And I'm just kind of curious, like, did you have to, like, disengage from that when you stopped? I mean, or do you still kind of obsessively track this stuff? I don't. I did disengage to a large extent. Um, I'm partly as a matter of time and energy. You know, I mean, I'm busy enough doing the other stuff I'm doing that um, uh, that I, I to keep on top, especially now in the first days of the Trump administration. But even before <laughs> then, um, to keep on top of political news, which I'm supposed to do in this era of so many different sources of it, of so many different blogs and all that. I mean, that is hours and hours of reading a day. I also try to keep uh, keep on top of a lot of college stuff because that's a sort of sub sub area of interest. And so as a sheer matter of reading time, I can't keep on top of the food world and restaurants as much as I would like to as a matter of genuine interest. But I mean, I'm usually aware when new restaurants open as as just as a hobby is something I love to do. I try a lot of them. Um, I mean, I still eat out more than more than the average bear does, but um, but not in as targeted and in as obsessive and, and super knowledgeable a way as 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 when I was doing it full time. Speaking of the political beat, you have a recipe in this book from Paul Ryan. We do. I want to talk about that recipe um, right now, but also like I want to talk about it every second for the rest of my life. Um, That's a lot of Paul Ryan talk. I guess I have many questions about this recipe. So the recipe in the book is called Oh Dear, D-E-E-R, Speaker Paul Ryan's Loaf. Right. And among other amazing that was things. Our, he, he gave us the recipe. We, we, we put that title on it. <laughs> among other amazing things, he makes this meatloaf using a deer he kills himself. Well, so can I tell you about how that meatloaf came to be in the book? Please. And I then want I'm nothing gonna, more. And then I'm going to validate for you that you're right that it's metaphoric. But what's interesting is all four of the political meatloaves in the book turn out to be very metaphoric, I think. So um, Jennifer Steinhauer, my incredible, wonderful friend and co-author. She's been covering Congress for the Times for the last, I'm going to get this wrong, five, seven years. I don't know. She's a spectacularly great political reporter and knows Congress well and is known by everyone there. Um, one of the senators whom she <clears throat> probably talks to the most in the hallways, et cetera, because they're both food lovers and cooking lovers, is Susan Collins from Maine. 
Susan knew that Jennifer was developing recipes for this meatloaf book. Um, I should say Senator Collins. And Senator Collins said to Jennifer, I'd love to give you my, my, my family's and my meatloaf recipe. And Jennifer said, great, sure, because we were taking meatloafs from elsewhere as we developed them. Um, months go by. Uh, Jennifer goes to do an interview with Paul Ryan, which she'd done before. Paul Ryan knows Jennifer and vice versa. Um, someone on his staff had clearly done the obligatory Google search, you know, so he had a few kind of social niceties to say to Jennifer at the start of the interview. And somewhere there must have been mention of the meatloaf book. And so Speaker Ryan uh, said to Jennifer, oh, I'd love to give you my venison meatloaf recipe. So she said, oh, okay, great. That'd be interesting. She, she called me and she said, so this is, what do we do now? And I said, well, Jennifer, this is really clear. We take his venison meatloaf recipe. We've now got a Republican senator and a Republican in the House. We now get to corresponding Democrats. And if we go to Nancy Pelosi and say we have a meatloaf recipe from Paul Ryan, I think she's going to give us a meatloaf recipy. And then That's we'll brilliant. choose a Democrat in the Senate. Chuck Schumer is whom we chose. But what's interesting is if you look at Susan Collins's meatloaf recipe, the one it began with, it is just kind of – it is quintessential Americana, which is really her political identity and which in a sense is the state of Maine, which, yeah. she, which she represents. Paul Ryan, huge part of his personal mythology and political identity is the outdoorsman, uh, the hyperfit guy, the hunter. He does go hunting for deer with a bow, right? So he gives us a venison meatloaf. We go to Nancy Pelosi. She represents the. She's from the West Coast, right? She represents, you know, the very kind of um, healthy living Bay Area. So her recipe is half bison, a beast, a beast of the West, um, le the a leaner, a leaner of, meat. Yeah. So there's the Bay Area, and instead of breadcrumbs, she has torn bits of ciabatta. Oh my She's God. Italian, Nancy Pelosi, right? Oh. But so, I mean, Jennifer and I joke, but it's really not a joke. Whether you're talking about those meatloaves or whether you're talking about other ones in the book, there's a real weird way in which meatloaf is a mirror. Like you show me someone's family meatloaf or you show me the meatloaf they love best. And it almost always tells you something about that human being. So did you get this recipe from Paul Ryan? Um, where, where, at what point in his descent into like one of the – top five villains in America. Did you acquire this meatloaf recipe from him? You know, now you're testing my memory. Uh, you know, all books are sort of set in stone a good uh, six, five months before they actually appear on shelves. So it was more than five or six months ago. I think it was toward, it was very much toward the end of the, so it may have been eight or nine months ago that so we got this recipe. it was clear that he was a horrible person who was destroying America. I mean, this is my word. Like, <laughs> wow. Wow. Sorry. Listen, I have a lot of issues with I have a lot of issues with Paul Ryan, but um um wow. It's okay. I, I'm I'm gonna you It know, was several years after he took part. those photos in the gym though, right? But you do have the P ninety X joke in the headnote, which is great. Of course, like, yeah, of I mean, course we do. You can't mention Paul Ryan with that. You know, um I will tell you, we got it from him before um you may have already thought of him as one of the great villains, but we got it from him before. Um I would say we had the number of instances that we have today of Trump accommodation. Mm -hmm. I mean, to me, the big question about Paul Ryan right now is the big question about any any Republican other than the most um, proudly crazy extremist ones, which is how much how much of what Donald Trump is doing that fundamentally violates what you supposedly believe. I mean, even on a policy level, you know, Paul. Paul Ryan doesn't believe what Donald Trump does about protectionism when it comes to trade. You know, how much are you, Paul Ryan, you, Mitch McConnell, the rest of them, how much are you willing to turn a blind eye to? How much are you willing to be silent about? 
in the interest of getting that one or two, those one or two things that you are convinced Donald Trump may deliver for you. Paul Ryan has, uh, you know, almost as if as one pines for a romantic, the, the object of one's affection, Paul Ryan has pined for tax reform from the moment he got on Capitol Hill. He apparently believes Donald Trump may deliver that, and there's a whole lot he's willing to put up with. But I think the real story um, of his political career right now, and really the story of American politics and of what's going on in Washington right now, is how much will Republicans turn a blind eye to when it comes to Trump and when it comes to the way in which he has dragged down the office of the presidency. I mean, I, I am startled daily by what I see, hourly by what I hear. How much will they put up with and will they indulge because they think they're going to get something particular out of it? And how are they going to justify getting that one particular thing, giving away so very much more, in my view? I think that is exactly the 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 fulcrum on which all of this rests, for yes. sure. And, and, and part of what I imagine many people people's increasing daily anxiety level hinges on is just a, a complete lack of ability to predict where the line is going to be. Like, right. what, when so are many we going lines to know? Have, Donald Trump has already moved so many lines that I didn't think, you know, it is just, and I don't know how political you want to get here, but... Um, we can the, get very political. No, but I mean, if you go back in time to some of his earliest outrages, I mean, not, I mean, the earliest, one of the earliest ones in a political sense being the whole, I mean, being the, re, the, the triumphant outrage of the birther campaign, the birther conspiracy. But if you just go back to this, this political campaign, stuff that happened, I mean, for many politicians sitting on a stage with a camera on you and a microphone under you and saying that you didn't admire John McCain because you preferred veterans who were not captured? I mean, this is a man who spent years being tortured by the Vietnamese as a prisoner of war. Um, it is, if you, if you took Donald Trump out of the equation and you said, there's this politician who's gonna run for president and he or she is gonna say this early on, you'd say, ah, well, that's a that's a campaign ender, you know. I mean, sure. that's akin to George Romney saying that he'd been that he'd been brainwashed by the assessments that military officials had given him of the Vietnam War. Um, but someone reminded me yesterday because I'd already forgotten it because there are so many moments like this with Donald Trump. Somebody reminded me um, of the moment when he seemed to be encouraging Second Amendment th enthusiasts to take a shot at Hillary Clinton. Mm -hmm. He has done a hundred things. Any one of them would have ended somebody else's candidacy or political career. And he's he gets away with them in part because they exist in this cloud of them. And so each one tends to be minimized by the bevy of them. The baseline inappropriateness is so high or low, is so extreme that, right. that it, it sort of, yeah, that, that's, you know, it, to, to somewhat clumsily bring it back to meatloaf, but, but, but I do actually think this is very connected. One of the... Th through lines with the Trump campaign and now into the Trump presidency has been this idea of not normalizing or whatever term you want to use yeah, now right, that right. normalizing has been co-opted and, and tainted. And, and a lot of that has come to play in these areas like food and things that Greg and I cover or the fashion that Melania is wearing. People are saying, you know, don't talk about the softer lifestyle -y elements of their lives, the things that very frequently were used to sort of humanize other presidents, other congresspeople saying, you know, cookie recipes for the first lady cookie bake-off or 
in Trump's case, you know, there was a recipe for his mother's meatloaf that was circulating early in the campaign. He's not really a noted food there's person. There's even if you want but, and if if you or your or your listeners want to go online, there's even video on YouTube of Donald Trump years ago with Melania making that meatloaf on Martha Stewart's show. What? Oh How oh did man. we not How uncover we not that? Found- you really should, should, you really should, fired, should look yeah. at it because Melania's kitchenware is not the normal kitchenware. Well, let's I, just say. You know, anytime you go down the rabbit hole of finding weird videos that involve Donald Trump from, you know, there's so many. There's WrestleMania. There's Home Alone 2. That's true. You know, Very true. He appeared. I, I actually have been having a lot of fun is the wrong word, but I have been taking on an extracurricular, extracurricular activity of just doing deep dives into Trump on various things that are in some way related to the food or restaurant world and hoping I find a story. And um, he has a cameo in the Woody Allen movie Celebrity where um, he plays himself, I think, or he plays a a, a version of himself in a scene that takes place at Jean-Georges, the restaurant in Trump Tower, which is not called Jean-Georges in the movie, but he is interviewed by one of the characters and says he's just bought a cathedral or something. I mean, it, like there are right. all of these weird ways that he has appeared everywhere in the well, fabric Well, he's of been in, American if you history. just look at his, <laughs> it's a weird word to use, if you just look at his filmography, I think he's been in about two dozen movies. Um, Home Alone too. Yeah, exactly. I'm always kind of doing that sort of Donald Trump walkthrough. Yeah. So when but you, that's, but that, and that's not, that's not incidental. Donald Trump understood early on um, if you look at his business career, his name is on all these buildings that he actually doesn't own or that he has like only the most tangential business relationship to. He would often give away certain things or negotiate things in a way that what he cared about was the name being in big gold letters. And the movie thing is the same thing. Donald Trump understood early on that if you had a sort of celebrity omnipresence, that in and of itself was marketable and that in and of itself had value. What was the the various things about his finances that were revealed over the course of the campaign that he makes far more money from his licensing yeah. than from just his lending real out his name? I was just going to say, I didn't know that, Helen, about um, Trump and celebrity, but I was surprised because it just kind of makes sense that that movie, I mean, I see that as some sort of, this is a different conversation, but it's kind of this great time capsule of like a time and a place in New York and it's kind of about huge egos so it's kind of he fits right in, in. retrospect yeah yeah um but back to that question of normalizing mm-hmm. do you Sorry. um when you do something like include Paul Ryan's recipe in a cookbook and I suppose this applies on the other side too um you know if if a conservative reader would be put off by Nancy Pelosi's recipe I mean do you worry that treating a politician who makes serious decisions and possibly extraordinarily damaging decisions in a light way in a meatloaf context is an improper way to handle him? No, because I think (laughs) it's a meatloaf book. And um, uh, I've written other things about Paul Ryan and many other people writing other things about Paul Ryan in the context of a meatloaf book. Paul Ryan being included in our meatloaf book um, is not going to redeem him in the eyes of people who hate him. Um, nor is it going to deify him further in the eyes of people who adore him. It's just Paul Ryan in a meatloaf book. But I will tell you what does matter to me about him being in this book and Susan Collins being in this book um, and Chuck Schumer and um, Nancy Pelosi. Um, I worry very much, uh, very much, about the inability in this country, the growing inability of people across the political divide to have sane 
measured conversations. I worry very much about our inability to find common ground in places where it really shouldn't be that hard to find because we're so ready to demonize the other side and we're so intent on creating a world of utter villains and utter, utter heroes. It matters to me, and I hope people see and take note, that there are two Democrats and two Republicans in this book. Um, they e each one of them knew the other one was there. And at least on the subject of food and on the, on the common ground of meatloaf, everyone was able to play nicely. We've got to try. I mean, we have to fight our important political battles. We have to um, defend uh, very aggressively the ideals we hold dearest. But we have to try in this country to do that in a way um, that is less vitriolic um, and that acknowledges that people do sometimes have genuine differences and they can talk about those in a civilized way. One of my, one of my many big issues with Donald Trump is he drags down the vocabulary and the emotional temperature or in that case, he ratchets it up, of our conversations in a way that's not constructive. So I'm not worried about, you know, normalizing Paul Ryan by him being in the book or seeming to honor him in some way, nor am I worried about a conservative person seeing Nancy Pelosi in the book. I do care about, and I'm proud, that there are two politicians from each party and from each chamber of Congress in this book, and they found common ground here. When you were reviewing restaurants, did you ever feel like those were political acts? Um, no, not intrinsically. Um, but I do think that uh, – and I don't think I've ever thought of them as political, but I did feel that people often – not lovers of restaurant reviews, but kind of people in general sometimes shortchange um, what can be the kind of meaning or not profundity but something short of that of restaurant reviews in the sense that I think they're a real snapshot um, of a given city, um, of a given moment. Um, of the way different people um, in a metropolis sort themselves. Um, I don't think that makes them abundantly political, but it does make them about much, much more than food. I think um, every like era of like the different Times critics, like, I mean, I like all the New York Times critics. I liked the guys that followed you and the ones that came before you. Um, I mean, a lot of the things that I find most exciting about food and restaurants seem to sort of bubble up and happen and things that we inevitably cover a lot on Eater, you know, during your tenure there. And I feel like you, know, you and Peter Meehan, when he was writing The 25 and Under, right. kind of Great introduced guy. us to a lot of things that are still really popular right now and kind of helped demystify a lot of the the at least the, the New York culinary landscape. Well, I think Peter and Peter and I had the interesting Good fortune. Um, I think if you look at our years, and they almost perfectly dovetailed. I mean, I, I don't. I'd have to have like the kind of um, electronic library in front of me, but I think we pretty much did those jobs in tandem for that whole time. And I think um, something that began to happen before then, um, and that accelerated afterwards, but I think happened in the most intense way under our watch was um, the the disappearance, the willful banishment um, of so many of the rituals of conventional fine dining. Um, and that was really exciting because it was an attempt, I think, to bring food of great discernment and food of great accomplishment to a wider audience of people. A populist approach to It was a more populist approach because food. one of the reasons that the rituals of fine dining were being banished is because a lot of those rituals um, added a lot of you know uh, dollar signs and, and decimal points to a meal without actually fundamentally um, changing what was on your plate. Uh, maybe it was changing the plate it came on. And so it made, I think, um, fine dining. It changed the definition of fine dining, but it also made what it was under that new definition accessible to more people. Um, and that 
it's hard not to feel that that was a wonderful, wonderful change. It's impossible not to feel that. Um, and it was cool to see that happening on our watch. Um, I mean, we didn't have, I mean, all we could do was chronicle it, but I think both of us tried to champion it in different ways because it was something that was so clearly um, an improvement um, and, 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 a, and a force of good. I do think that what we're talking about, that this sort of moment was in many respects basically a de-Frenchification of fine dining. Yeah, right? well, yeah. Like the, even if a restaurant wasn't didn't have Shea in the name or explicitly bill itself as French, the, the legacies and structures and techniques of haute cuisine was the, comprised the lens through which America and New York City and the New York Times decided what was the highest end. I mean, I remember when Ruth Reichel was was critic and she faced so much backlash for talking about Chinese food in the same way that she talked about French French food. food. Yeah. And and, and now has... if you didn't do that, people would be scandalized. Absolutely. That's how much the world's changed. Yeah. But I think that, you know, that goes back to the question that I'd asked before. There is there is a perhaps subtle, but there is a politic to restaurant criticism, to criticism in general, to say, like, this is the thing that we value enough to turn our critical lens on it. Well, I guess I guess you could make the argument, and I think it would be a fair one, that if you are praising um, an egalitarian trajectory uh, in the dining scene, you're, you're showing some political colors. It's just hard for me to believe that anyone, even from, even from the mo- most elitist slash conservative and those things are not synonymous and they're, you know, um, it's hard to believe anyone would really think, no, fine dining must remain, must, must remain the privilege of the French and the privilege of people who can pay above a certain, um, a certain uh, point. But yes, the degree of enthusiasm one has for the more egalitarian direction of the restaurant scene, I guess, reflects something about one's politics and becomes something of a political statement. This is, I've, I've heard anecdotally that the, this is why D.C. is not a great food city, which is its own contestable statement. But um, somebody may have actually linked me to a study, but I'm going to say that this is anecdotal, that that if you lean towards the politically conservative, you tend also to lean towards the culinarily conservative. But why would you intrinsically say D.C., which is we're oh, just coming out of eight years of a Democratic administration? Right. So, so the, the connection to D.C. I think was Gosh, now I'm going to lose the thread of where I was, where my thought was with this. But it was, it was something about, I don't know, the halls of power. They, don't, I mean, the colonial interior decorating style of Washington is also I mean, not th- that great. There would so. be, there would be someone, someone should write it. There'd be a fantastic essay. I mean, if if one accepts the premise that DC punches below its weight restaurant wise. And I guess a city's weight would be determined by the metropolitan area's population and what kind of customer base you have. If you accept the premise that it punches below its weight restaurant-wise, and I think it does, less so than before, but I think it still does, there's a great essay on why is that. I think part of the reason is once once a city's restaurant scene is already that way, it takes, an, it takes a really long time, you know, to kind of change that DNA and to kind of make up for the for – the, distance you lag behind. But I think there are other things. I mean, D.C. is a is a, is a phenomenally transactional city, right? Um, and it's a city in which I think people use the best, quote unquote, or the most expensive restaurants in a very transactional business way. And they're focused less on the food than on the utility of that restaurant as a meeting place to make deals or whatever. My guess is that's one little component of it, but it would be a great, great essay for someone to write um, for the right magazine, like wh- like a, a, a full theory 
of the D.C. restaurant inferiority. Yeah, I mean, clearly the appetite is there, literally and figuratively. I mean, every time I've been to D.C. and I've been to one of the in- incredible crop of restaurants that that is quite wonderful. They're they're packed and they have infinite waits. I oh, mean, sure, because people, yeah, everybody is so excited yeah. for there to be fine or fine-ish dining that is not just another $75 steak yeah. steakhouse. I mean, cities cities don't, it's pretty fascinating, cities don't follow a predictable restaurant logic. I think LA is a fantastic restaurant city and partly, yes, because of all of the uh, ethnic cuisine on a, on a, on a lower, lower price end, but I think it's a fantastic restaurant city on all levels. Um, and that sort of defies reason because if you've spent any time and you live there, Greg, so I'd like you to chime in and tell me if I'm crazy, but if you spend any time dining in LA, you you, you learn right away that nobody, everybody's self-identity is tethered to what they can and cannot eat. They invent, they invent things they can't eat based on some imaginary nutritionist just because you cannot come to the table without enzyme pills. I can't count the number of people I've dined with in, in LA who come to the table with what look like a handful of multivitamins, but they're the special enzymes that their nutritionist has prescribed for them. To eat. But my point is they turn eating into such a bizarrely, it's not, fetishistic isn't even the right word, but it's, and yet, and yet this bizarre customer base nonetheless supports terrific restaurants, terrific restaurants that don't seem um, bound at the end of the day by the dining peculiarities or the nutritional peculiarities of their customers. All right. You're, you live in L.A. You know, Tell I, me I, I 100% agree with that um, assessment and, and just generally think that there's a greater array of restaurants, you know, just of all, you know, tiers and cuisines um, in L.A., for whatever reason, maybe because so many different kinds of people live here. Um, whereas in New York, you know, it's there's also tons of diversity in terms of dining. But like, you know, at a certain level, if you're like at the at the sort of eater heat map level of restaurants that are hot and buzzy that we write about, there seems to be like kind of more homogenization. I don't know. That's just kind of my. Yeah, no, I think you're right. LA, LA feels a little bit less predictable. And then, of course, one can't talk about how good the restaurants are there without mentioning the access to product. Yeah. I mean, you're in California. Right. Um, and you're starting that, on third base, really. You're, like, exactly. Yeah. And, and that makes a big difference. Yeah. Well, Frank, we have come to the portion of our show that we like to call the lightning round because we ask you unpredictable questions in a not terribly fast way. All the questions are about lightning. lightning well, well, I like I like that you're, I like that you're do it in a not fast way because that means I can answer in a slower way. Yes, we will all speak incredibly slowly for the people who like to listen to their podcasts at double speed, which is apparently a thing. I did not know about this. I didn't oh, know everybody that listens to their podcasts at double speed so they can make it through them twice as quickly. That's I, the point hilarious. Of so basically, you have Mickey Mouse reading every pod, you know, doing everything. Yeah, yeah. and wow. like I already speak quickly and have a somewhat high pitched right. voice, so I think I just like ascend to dog frequency when people are listening. Wow. Wow. And today we have questions for you from a guest question asker. I'm going to do a drum roll, and Greg's going to do it. Da 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 da. It's Eater's New York restaurant critic, Mr. Ryan Sutton. Critic on critic lightning round. Wow. High concept. Ryan, welcome to the Eater Upsell. I hear you have some questions for Frank Bruni. Hi, Frank. This is Ryan Sutton, and I have some lightning round questions for you. Who's the ideal candidate to be a food critic or food writer in 2017? 
It's a real light question for you for the first. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Way to kick um, it off with an easy one, Ryan. I have to say, I mean, the formats have changed, you know, online, et cetera. But I think the ideal critic for 2017 is the same as the ideal critic for 1997, which is somebody who loves food, um, is discerning about it and has a frame of reference, a history of experiences that enables him or her to truly know what's distinctive and what's just old hat and ordinary. I don't think that's changed. I don't think anything's different about 2017 than 1997 in terms of what makes someone a good restaurant critic. I like that answer. Yeah, that's... Okay, we'll accept that. Let's move on. Ryan, what's your next question? How should regional newspapers, which are facing budget cuts and declining advertising revenues, approach food criticism? (sighs) Another Um, softball. Yeah, no, no. I mean, they're they're great questions, but I um, I don't know that there's an answer for regional newspapers, because the one thing I would hate to see happen is for everyone just to turn it over to user-generated content, um, because then you open yourself up to all sorts of manipulation that are difficult to police for and that are difficult to flag to readers. And one of the reasons I would always warn people against, say, you know, Yelp or something like that, is you have no idea if you're reading a review by the chef's mother, you know, by the chef's arch enemy in grammar school who's exacting revenge. Um, And so I don't have an answer for how those newspapers are going to find the money or a way to cover restaurants. But I know that if they decide to lean solely on user-generated content and essentially turn restaurant criticism into into a public opinion poll, they're opening themselves up to manipulation that is going to render what they're producing meaningless. I'm going to piggyback on Ryan's very easy light lightning round question with an easy light question. See, I thought lightning round questions were to be like the answer was a proper noun. Yeah, you know, no, just, wow, these are essay. Yeah. This is this, this is, is not true style. or false. This is essay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is a but this is a fascinating dialogue between you know two of the titans of restaurant criticism in New York. I think. But I want to I want to piggyback on Ryan's question with a mean spirited one. Sure. Which is, um, are there? You don't have to name names, but are there critics working today who you think just suck? Like they're not doing in food service or in, in, in food criticism. Like who you think are 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 not living up to the yes the responsibility. I would not name names, critic. but yes, but I, but I would say that in any field of criticism and probably at any moment of time, and I would say that that is an opinion that is largely subjective. Okay, cool. I think that's very fair. All right, Ryan, back to you for another easy, quick to answer question. You awarded four stars to Masa in two thousand and four. It was three hundred dollars before tip back then. Would you approach it differently now that it's $595 per person, service included? <laughs> um, I would I would evaluate it with that price in mind. I would evaluate the quality of what I was getting with that price in mind. Um, when I reviewed Maza, I think that price tag then um, was as shocking to as many people as the price tag that you just mentioned, Ryan. Um, it depends on what's being provided for that. And it becomes really difficult. At the end of the day, you tell people what it costs. And it's sort of a personal value judgment whether they think um, that is an appropriate amount or a doable amount to spend for food. And I think your primary job is telling them what is the wondrousness that you will or won't experience. It's interesting to me, like there's always a lot of hand-wringing and restaurant criticism about a very high-ticket meal like the one at Maza. But when people are doing fashion criticism, they never factor in the cost of the dress. And that's because what they're saying to you is I'm, I'm telling you about the artistry of this and what that artistry um, uh, represents in terms of accomplishment, in terms of the possibility of the genre. And then they leave it to you to decide 
um, whether you think that price tag is something that's absolutely absurd um, for what's being discussed or whether it's within reach. I think restaurant criticism is obviously much, much more consumer-focused by necessity than that. But there is this element of at the end of the day, if you lean too hard, I mean, how, how, who can say – whether a 5% uptick, uptick um, in the majesty of a piece of sushi is worth a $20 uptick in the price tag, that's ultimately a value decision um, that has to be left with the consumer. Hey, I have a sub-question um, related to this sort you of— You guys in your sub-questions. I know, I know. Man. We're, we're, we're grilling you, man. Um, is there any kind of <laughs> restaurant that you're just, like, glad you don't have to go to now that you, you know, when you stop being the, the restaurant critic? Um, no, because I actually um, have— totally varied, varied tastes. So there's no like ethnic cuisine that I thought, thank God I don't have to eat that anymore. Um, no, the answer to that is no. I think I still go to a full gamut. I mean, is, is a gamut full or is that the right? I don't know. Yeah. I still, I still go to the full spectrum, the whole gamut of restaurants. Um, uh, the thing I do less often, um, and to be honest, in some, in some senses felt a little bit unburdened by is I don't dine as frequently in three and a half hour, 14-course restaurants. Um, I loved doing it when I did it. I love doing it upon occasion now. But it is not – like if you're talking about my default setting as a diner, you know, and my sensibility my, – my most intrinsic, unforced sensibility as a human being, it's not to sit for three – now, I often end up sitting for three and a half hours, right? But I – it's by choice. It's not because we haven't gotten to course 15 yet, you know? It's, it's one of those and things where it's hard to complain about, but it is a real thing. I mean, Greg and I have talked – Ryan and I, we've all talked about it before. Like when you have to do those marathons right. for work or if you just wind up doing right. them a lot, it, it really so takes a toll. So now if I do one of those marathons, I've elected to and I've chosen an, an evening, an occasion where I'm pretty damn sure I'm going to want the marathon. When you're a critic, in the same way you might end up at a burger joint on a night when that's not your mood, you frequently end up in those marathon meals. Um when they're not quite, you know, or or, or you, you you pick, you know, three companions and it turns out the table conversation is, isn't as wonderful and easy as you thought it would be. And it's like, oh, dear, I ended up mm-hmm. choosing them for a four hour experience rather than a two hour experience. We're all going to be um, stuck with each other for a long time. All right, Ryan, any more questions for us? Who do you think will reshape the New York restaurant scene over the next 10 years? Easy questions. Really easy. Yeah. Um, I, this isn't the kind of... <laughs> answer you were looking for, um, uh, I think diners will. I mean, at the end of the day, we keep on, we talk so much in the food, in food journalism, there's so much focus on what chefs are doing um, as if they're, as if they're doing it in a vacuum and we're just kind of obediently following along. Um, And the chefs who end up, uh, rising to great levels and becoming the tastemakers of our time, that only happens because they're doing something that actually turns out to be in utter concert with what diners want at a given moment. So, I mean, David Chang is a monumentally talented person. Um, He was doing something that it turned out diners wanted at that moment in time. So the food scene of the next 10 years will be shaped by the appetites of people between the ages of 25 and 45 right now and however their appetites change, appetites in terms of what they want 
want to eat, how they want to eat, in what sort of atmosphere they want to eat, they're the ones who are going to determine where we go because the chefs who succeed are going to be succeeding not just based on their talented on their talents. They're gazillion talented chefs, not a gazillion, many talented chefs out there. They'll be succeeding because they actually happen to be working in a way um, that satisfies the evolving appetites of diners which are impossible to predict. All right, Ryan, what's next? What is the most important food Wait, I have a question. I want to jump in. Ryan, hang on. Okay, Frank, if you could only write about politics or only write about food for the rest of your life, which one would you do? Um, I would pick only writing about politics. Really? Sure. Well, I mean, A, I write very little about food now. I mean, we're here talking about a cookbook that I wrote, um, which was a joy to write and a lot of fun. But um, right now I write... Uh, you know, 90% of what I write is about politics and maybe 2% is about food. Um, so uh, that tells me something about my natural interests. Um, I feel like I get to use um, a broader vocabulary in a lot of different ways writing about politics. Politics is everything. Um, you could argue food is everything too. Um, but I feel like my parameters are wider and the world is more infinite um, and I don't get stuck using the word succulent as often. In fact, I, in fact, I'm trying to think of an occasion when I've written about politics or politicians when I've used the word succulent, and I'm coming up blank. Um, there's, there's a. There, there's I think a, we should we should charge you with this. Like um, we're gonna yeah. keep an eye on your columns well, over think, the next four I think, months. And we're I think look um, for the word not to not to. I hope it's okay to mention a competitor of yours and mine or whatever. Mm -hmm. But I think we really need to see a BuzzFeed list soon of the 17 most succulent politicians on oh, Capitol yeah. Hill. That's a great idea. Yeah, yeah. we should. Yeah. I, I could not click on that. Yeah. Who could not? Yeah, exactly. That and is the I mean, already thing. you're like, what are the pictures going to be? You know, what does succulent really mean? Yeah. You know, if someone is as grisly mm -hmm. as Paul Ryan, does he qualify? Is he succulent? I mean, he does. He makes a point in his meatloaf recipe of calling for fatty ground beef. Like specifically, he he's into the succulence of well, his we meatloaf. Well, we make a, we make a point in the meatloaf book of calling for fatty meats um, because so, meatloaf is not, by and large, one of those things that you can turn into a diet food. And if you want, if you want to eat something lean. You know, and and in, in a low fat, you know, on a low fat diet. If then, you're Nancy then, Pelosi about this, well, then don't, well, I mean, but she well, see, interestingly, she uses half bison and half pork. Oh, because if you just leave it to Ying the bison, the it's like yeah, it's like we say, you know, you want to make a turkey meatloaf. Absolutely, we're with you. We have recipes for you. Use dark meat turkey. Is Chris right. Christie succulent? Um, well, again, what do we mean by succulent? <laughs> I well, I I just you know I think this is something I mean, where is, we're going to have to triangulate is, is, this. Is, is, right? like, is succulent simply a, 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 a yardstick of fat content, or does it mean something you want to? Are we cooking or does it mean with something the politicians? You wanna, or does it mean something you want to bite into? And like, am I making a meatloaf out of the politician? Or I think am it I might be now a time to go to now, our next now we're in the Hannibal Lecter phase of the question. program. Wow. I don't know. I mean, we could let's like like you know top seventeen politicians. You would you would probably eat first if you had to eat politicians. I don't know. This is weird, right? This is very. I'm taking um, this to a dark place. Yeah, this is very like what's that movie? Alive, right? On the <laughs> yeah. eat each other on the top of yeah. 
where Ethan, Ethan Hawke <laughs> ends up eating human meat. Or I think he wandered off so he didn't have to eat the human meat. I can't. Yeah. I have not seen this movie, but I'm. Oh, going it has to one it. of the best. Um, I, if you were doing a, no, I'm serious here. <laughs> okay. If you were doing a list of movies with the with the best plane crashes, like the most harrowing. I really thought visual, you were going to say movies with the best like cannibalistic. No, moments. that's Silence of okay. the Lambs, clearly, or yeah. you know, or Hannibal, which had that horrible scene at the end with Ray Liotta's head. We don't want to go did there. Not see that we do not. Oh, you don't want to see that. Um, <laughs> but no, there there are there's some great plane crashes in movies. The plane crash in Castaway is fantastic. The plane crash in, um, what is it, Fearless, the one with Jeff Bridges and Rosie Perez. This is, so are you, I love are you into I'm this? a connoisseur of film plane crashes. Really? Like, yeah, is and then this a got, known thing about and yourself? Then, and then like, you've got the movie Flight, where the plane goes upside down with Denzel Washington. Do you, you know, go such out of your way to find movies with plane crashes in them? You know, I didn't think I did, but now that we're talking about it, I think obviously I am pulled, you know. <laughs> like metal to a magnet by movies with great plane crashes. Well, we're going to have to have you on for another episode of The Upsell so we can plumb the depths of this particular. We can talk about what meatloaf you should eat during a plane crash. Dur- while while you're descending, while once you're descend- you have survived. Right. Like there's so many opportunities to eat meatloaf in and How around to forage for your own meatloaf on the castaway island. Yes. God, this is great. Robinson Crusoe's favorite meatloaf. We, this we, is this like really, you know, favorite. Yeah. There's so many. This is really this. <laughs> the a meatloaf in every oven is the beginning of an encyclopedic series of books. We have only begun to meatloaf. The sequel, a meatloaf in every crock pot. And then oh we'll do a meatloaf in every wok. Every right? pressure yeah. cooker. Yeah, yeah the pressure cooker. Instant pot. So Instant pot. Right yeah. The coolest kitchen appliance. Um, do we have one more question from Ryan? God, I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> and that's no diss to Ryan. It's just I was expecting lightning round like boxers or briefs. And boxers or briefs? Yeah. Briefs. There, there, there you got. So you got your lightning question. Now we can move on to Ryan's final essay format question. What is the most important food trend or who is the most important chef that the food media isn't paying attention to? You know, I, that, I wish I had an answer for that. But the thing is, I'm so not in a food media mindset right now that I don't I don't want to give an answer that's unintelligent and the only answer I have to give to that is unintelligent because I'm just not I'm not paying close enough attention to the people on the rise to do justice to that question and name the person who deserves to be named. I think your publicist would probably want you to say that more people should be eating meatloaf. Yes. yes. So Who's the, the most important meatloaf? Okay, you know, trend that okay. is undersung. All right. As, as um <laughs> She says as she hands me the go- the gorgeous <laughs> book. It's so gorgeous. I just want to give a shout out to um, Marilyn Pollock Naron who did the illustrations. They're adorable. Um, yes. Yeah, so the most important chef that doesn't get um, his or her due. Um, let's say uh, April Bloomfield because she contributed. Um, a meatloaf to a meatloaf in every oven. And I have to say, apart from that, and this doesn't make her the most important, but um, I love the restaurant White Gold in my neighborhood. I'm very mad at Pete Wells for giving it um, such a nice review because up until a week ago, I could just walk in. It was was not really being embraced by the Upper West Side around it as it should have been. And I'm actually headed there tonight with some friends, um, and I don't know what to expect. Um, because it's always been like always a table open and it could be a real cluster tonight. Oh. Well, you know, like we, we you had... are the one who gets screwed over by the the Pete Wells effect. Like that's I, that's perfect ironic it does come offense, feel, you know? Yeah, yeah. Like God damn that New York Times restaurant how critic people, he's how, too influential. How, how many people did I screw over yeah. by like taking their un, their their favorite unsung spots right. and then you and deserve then crowding whatever's them. coming. I do you. deserve everything I get. We had Ken Friedman <laughs> in here and I asked him how that restaurant was doing and he was like 
Yeah, there's a lot of people that love good restaurants in the Upper West Side. I mean, it was like a no-brainer. Well, it, <laughs> that those human beings it, it enjoyed may be pleasure. Doing, it may be doing real well, but I can tell you that, like, um, in its first couple months, there were many. T- I mean, I I walked in. I never called Ken or emailed April and said, "Can I?" You know, I walked in just as Joe Schmo slumped from the street, and there were always open tables. I will also tell you they, without a whole lot of fanfare or or, or putting out much PR, um, they had a couple special takeaway dishes for the Super Bowl. And they don't have chili on their menu, usually, at least when I've been there, but they were making chili by the court that you could order and Mm -hmm. take out for Super Bowl Sunday. I happened to go in there, my partner and I, that morning, Super Bowl Sunday morning, for egg sandwiches. And I saw people coming to pick up their chili. And I walked to the counter and I said, are you still? And they had exactly two quarts of chili left. um, And we bought them. And we had some friends who were coming over for Super Bowl. We served this chili. It was Oh, my God, some of the best chili I've ever had. They should put it on the menu. And it makes me think that the two big restaurant trends that you're about to see, chili and meatloaf. Meatloaf. Yeah. Well, on that note, Frank Rooney, thank you so much for coming by the Eater Upsell. <laughs> thank you for having um, me. If our listeners want to find a meatloaf in every oven, it's available now. And if they want to find you on social media, you are at Frank Bruni on I'm Twitter. I'm at Frank Bruni on Twitter, and I think I'm at Frank Bruni NYT on Facebook. Awesome. There, yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming by. Thank you, guys. Uh, thank really, you, my Frank. pleasure. It's been a blast. The Eater Upsell is recorded in the Vox Media Studios in New York and Los Angeles. Your hosts are me, Helen Rosner, and that other guy over there, Greg Morbido. Our producers are Maureen Giannone and Patrick Balder. Our editor and associate producer is Daniel Janine. Our associate editorial producer is Kendra Baculin. Our studio ops team is Alex Ulreich and Miles Yule. Our editor-in-chief and fearless leader is Amanda Clute. And the most important person involved in the creation of this entire crazy rodeo is you, dear listener. You. Thank you for being exactly who you are.